You're going inside the truck. Sports television production reveals how it goes from the TV mobile to your screen. The personalities, the stories, the raw excitement. Here are Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming. I'm Steve Lansky. I produce Hockey Night in Canada, the CFL on CBC, baseball, golf, basketball, worked at the Olympics, worked at the X Games. I am the luckiest guy in the world. And I'm Paul Hemming. I've been a live sports TV director for 22 years. I've directed the NHL, the CFL, and World Juniors for TSN, the NHL and Hockey Night in Canada for Sportsnet, as well as the San Jose Sharks for NBC Sports California. And currently, I'm the director of the Carolina Hurricanes for Fox Sports Carolinas. Well, Steve, the day has finally come. Uh, Episode one of our podcast. Uh, I know you had been on me for about three years to make this happen, and it only took a pandemic and me being currently unemployed to make it happen. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, It's pretty, uh, pretty good stuff we got going here. And that's the co-host you want, isn't it? Somebody who's in a pandemic and they're unemployed. (laughs) I have been bugging. Thank God that cease and desist order didn't take effect. Thank God we had the time to finally get this together because for you and I have known each other for what, 35 years, maybe, oh God, maybe even a little more, Mm -hmm. uh, 75 years together in television. I, I cannot believe that's right, but it is combined. And, um, I just know that whenever I talk about TV or how things happen in TV and in a truck and in a mobile, people just kind of stop and they listen and they look like, first of all, I think half the time we're making it up and the other half of the time they think, how can you actually possibly do that? But we do do it. And about once a week, I'm lucky enough to talk to Alan Mitchell on Low Tide on TSN 1260 in Edmonton. And he and I go back and forth a fair bit about how TV works and why a production crew would do this or why a producer would do that or why a director would do that. And it always seems to be a fascinating, engaging topic. And I thought, if anybody can talk about it, it should be me and you. Yeah, agreed. Uh, you know, occasionally we'll have a guest or tours through the, uh, the TV truck, uh, you know, while we're doing a game. And, uh, the, you know, the, the look on people's faces when they actually see what, what goes on behind the scenes to make it all happen uh, you know, is, is priceless. And for us, we're just, we're, we're just in the middle of it. We can't see the forest for the trees, but it is, it is entertaining. Um, it is, uh, intriguing. Um, and there certainly provides lots to be discussed. So we're looking forward to that. So we're in Calgary one game and Doug Risebrow is hurt. He's playing for the flames, might even have been their captain, but he's hurt. And so he's not dressed. So I'm producing the game, but John Shannon's there. He's kind of our senior producer. He's, around and he's invited riser to come into the truck so riser comes into the truck and it's the first period and he's sitting there and you know when you're producing or directing and somebody's in the truck putting on a show is a bit of an extravagant way to put it but you're doing your best you're trying to be semi flamboyant and i so i look back every once in a while and and riser's there and he's looking and i can see his eyes darting back and forth and so the first period ends, and I think it's a pretty good period, maybe three, two flames, something like that. And period ends, and we go to break, and we haven't gone to our host in the studio yet. And I turn around, and he's standing up. And I said, Riser, how'd you like that first period? And he bangs his hand on the desk, and he said, I got to get out of here. I said, what's the matter? He goes, I don't know where to look. I have no idea where to look. I don't know what's happening. I don't know where the play is. I don't know where the puck is. I don't know where to look. And he turned around and walked out of the truck, and that was it. 
Yeah, it can be intimidating for sure. I mean, you know, on a monitor wall uh, in front of the producer, the director and the technical director, there's, you know, anywhere between 100 to 200 monitors and can be configured to even be more than that. So, yeah, it is uh, the analogy I use is it's like playing your favorite video game on steroids at the, like the max level. Um, it's uh, it's it's a, it's a 100 miles an hour. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that during a show, my heartbeat doesn't my heart rate's probably not below 120 at any point. That's a good analogy. I like that because when you walk in on somebody playing a video game, you don't understand. You have no idea what's going on. But once you understand the ins and outs and that each one of those monitors in front of us means something, some really have to be relied on readily. Others don't hardly ever to be, uh, be looked at. But if you're just a casual observer, you have no idea how to make that, that uh, discerning decision uh, about where to look or where not to look. And I think that would be confusing as hell. Absolutely. And then on top of that as well, too, there's the, the, uh, the vocabulary or, you know, the language of being inside a truck and cameras are numbered, tape machines are colored. Um, you know, so, you know, all you're hearing is like, ready one, take one, ready two, take two, stand by red, go to red, stand by uh, font, add font one, lose font, stand by to affect out to camera two and affect it too. Like, you add that on top of 200 TV monitors and, and people's heads. Uh, if you're not in TV and you're not used to being inside the truck, your head is spinning. You know what the jargon reminds me of? I'm a real space junkie. And so anytime you watch astronauts talk about space and they're talking about EVA and lunar insertion and LEM and all that stuff, they always explain that jargon, but that jargon comes off their tongue like it's nothing. They've said mm -hmm. it 8,000 times, translunar insertion. So they'll say TLI and you have to remember that TLI was that. Well, it's the same thing in the truck, right? It's all these all these uh, catchphrases and acronyms and all these types of things that we use and, and you don't even have to think about them anymore. You just use them automatically. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Before we go any further, I got, I got to ask about our theme music. I only heard it for the first time today. That is the best theme music I've ever heard in my life. And it's all ours. Who did that? Okay, okay. So, so a good friend of mine, Jeff Kozak, who happens to be one of the best A1s, which is the term we use for lead audio uh, on remote broadcasts. He put that together for us in his home studio north of Toronto. It's our very own music for us to use forever and ever. Amen. And uh, we're grateful to uh, Jeff Kozak for, for doing that for us. He's, uh, he's uh, not only a great guy, but he's one of the finest technicians that I get a chance to work with. That music is just gold. So everybody in this business has a Genesis story, like how they got in. Nobody has a direct line in, you know, unless it's John Wells behind Cactus Jack Wells in Winnipeg or somebody like that. So what, Paul, what is your like weaving story of how you got into this business? Because there's no way it was a straight line. Uh, no, the year was 1985 and I was studying uh, radio and television arts at Ryerson in Toronto. And uh, part of that program was to uh, land an internship. And I was lucky enough to score mine with Molestar Communications, which at the time was the production company that ran uh, the broadcasts on Wednesday night and Saturday nights at Maple Leaf Gardens. And that's where we actually first met Steve. So we go back to 85 together. Um, anyway, so uh, my first job uh, during my internship was to be a runner. Now, a runner is the most basic entry-level position on the crew. Uh, you're basically just a page at standby anytime to go anywhere and literally run some, run some stats here, run coffees to the truck. Uh, we need you to run out and grab the three stars. And literally that's what it was. So you, you would, you'd be given assignments on the fly to execute. 
And uh, one night, um, I, I, when I first started out in the business, I wanted to be a commentator. Uh, I was going to be the next host of, of Hockey Night in Canada, uh, you know, replacing Dave Hodge back then at the time. That's, that was did, my goal. Did David know that or was that no, just no, you, he only you I, knew that? Yeah. I think I, the first year I worked down there, I didn't even talk. I don't think I talked to Dave once and I did out-of-town scores for him. Well, uh, I, I, you're, you wouldn't be alone in that. Uh, don't, yeah, don't poke the bear. Well, it was Mr. Hodge, right? And I mean, you know, I, I, I would emulate him in, you know, in my living room on Saturday nights, pretending I was interviewing the, you know, the, the first intermission player interview. So I was, you know, uh, it was like working with Dave was, was, you know, like I felt like I was living in a fantasy. Anyway, one night I said, uh, they said, hey, kid, we need you to run some coffees to the truck. So I loaded up a little takeaway container of six coffee coffees and some cream and sugar and, and stir sticks and and uh, now the next question was where is the truck because i had never been in the truck <laughs> i had only ever gone in the media entrance and trundled my way to the green room slash studio at maple leaf gardens i'd never even been in the truck and so as i was walking out i actually had to ask somebody wearing my blue powder blue hockey night in canada <laughs> blazer where is the tv truck and he and, said, uh, Woods, and he, it's out on Wood Street, kid. Yeah, he said, it's on Wood Street. And I'm like, uh, okay, left, right, uh, which way, uh, left. And just, you know what, kid, just follow the cables. The cables will take you to the truck. And I'm like, cables? Oh, okay. He, yeah, was, right. Just, he was right. Yeah, and he was. So I just, like a little mouse following, I just followed the cables all the way to the TV truck. And then, I, you know, I knocked on the door. And, of course, <laughs> That's a rookie move because anybody that comes to the truck, there's, you can knock on the door. Nobody's going to answer because the show is going on and there's no, we don't have a doorman in the TV truck. Somebody so, might, so, somebody might answer, but they will look uh, at you like you're from another planet, right? right. Like, so what I the know, hell are you doing? So here I am at the base of the stairs of the TV truck. I've got the tray of six coffees now probably stone cold and uh, nobody's answering the door. So I just, you know, I'm like, well, I got to get these coffees in there. So I trundle up, open the door, get the coffees in there. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, wow, it was like, it was like Oz. It was like being in some weird, strange world. You know, there it was, the production crew, the monitor wall, the producer, the director, the TD, you know, the, the script assistant, all doing their thing. And then at that moment, for me, that was my, that was my enlightening moment where I'm like, you know what? I do not want to be a commentator. I want to work in here. I don't, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I'm like, this is where I want to be. I want to be inside the truck. So I remember, well, it was the 85-86 NHL season at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. At that point, I knew that I wanted to do something in the TV truck because that's where it was at. I can't believe you knocked on the door. I'm <laughs> never going to forget that as long as I live. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's answering that door. Yeah. yeah. So I, let me see. I don't, I don't have a story like that, really. Um, I kind of stumbled into it. I loved stats when I was younger. Glenn Sather was our neighbor in Edmonton. I was very fortunate. And Glenn and I got to know each other, played some pickup basketball in the neighborhood. Uh, always got the neighbor boys to wash Glenn's truck when we beat them. Two on three, I might add. We were the two. And uh, so one summer uh, after I had finished high school, taking all the science courses I could and thought maybe I would become a doctor, uh, clearly that did not pan out. Um, I was at Glenn's Cottage in Banff. And um, I guess it was a house, wouldn't really call it a cottage. And he noticed me making some notes on a, in a little book with my baseball scores. And he said, what the hell are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just, I'm just writing down my baseball scores. What's it to you? And he said, listen, we're about to go into the NHL. And when we go in the NHL, 
We're not going to be like the Hartford Whalers, where we keep track of every pimple and nose hair that happens in the organization. We're going to start fresh. The Oilers are the Oilers' history. You know, Glenn played in the WHA, but he never, I don't think, ever thought it was the NHL. And he said, those seven years are going to get wiped from the books, and we're going to start fresh, and we need a statistician. Now, I'm 17 years old. 17. And I mm-hmm. said, yeah, I will do that. And meanwhile, my mind was going, what, first of all, what the hell is that? And second of all, how do I do it? So I do a little research. I read some books. I look at some media guides. And then I think, I can do that. And it was the day before computers. So I did it all manually. And um, so the Oilers' first five media guides have my name as an associate editor and all the stats inside are all mine. But so I'm still not in television. I'm just working for the Oilers. But when the Oilers go in the NHL, Hockey Night in Canada is going to come to Edmonton. So, of course, they show up. And knowing what I know now about Hockey Night, this isn't surprising. They don't have anybody in position to be a statistician. So they go to the Oilers and Elaine L, who was the Oilers PR assistant, such a lovely lady, uh, said, listen, we just hired this kid. He's reasonably bright. So she lied, obviously, to get me the job, which I appreciated. He's reasonably bright and maybe he can be your statistician upstairs. And the next thing I know, I'm upstairs with Jim Robson and I think it was Jerry Pinder doing the Oilers first game against Detroit on hockey night. And I, wow. I never looked back. Yeah, I did that for five years. And man, I'll tell you, if I could throw a switch and go back and do that again, I would do it in a heartbeat. That's awesome. Uh, in my second year of my internship, um, I did stats. I got uh, elevated to the position of statistician. So that's sitting beside, at then, Bob Cole and Harry Neal in the booth at Ma- uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. And, uh, you know, and keeping track of everything, you know. But the, your number one assignment is anytime there's a goal, you got to record the goal score and the assists and the time of the goal and get it to Bob ASAP. And Steve, you and I both have the same story that happened to us in the booth working with Mr. Cole, the one and only Mr. Cole. Well, you got and- you got it. You tell your version, man. No, you tell yours. Yours is way better than, I mean, it's the same, but you tell it way better. I'll so tell you, I was going to say, I'll tell you how the same it is. It's spooky how mm-hmm. same it is because so they, ha- they happen six years apart. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you tell the story because you tell it great. So I think it's the first year I'm doing stats. It's not the first game, but it's the first year. And at some point, Uh, So Hockey Night in those days didn't have all national games. Some games were regional, some were national. Usually uh, Toronto would be national or Montreal, but occasionally there'd be a game in Edmonton. Maybe it was Toronto at Edmonton or Montreal at Edmonton, but that would be a national game. So Bob Cole shows up to do play-by-play. Now Bob has some idiosyncrasies, will be the nicest way I can put it. So I've done the job enough now as a stats guy where I'm reasonably comfortable with what I'm doing. And I have a little pad of paper. The pages are about two by three. And I just scribble like a maniac. And then anytime you want the play-by-play guy to have some information, because I'm sitting on his left and the color guy is sitting on his right. So the play-by-play guy is in the middle. And anytime I want him to have that information, I just scribble it on a piece of paper and I kind of put it over beside him. And I've worked with a bunch of guys at this point. I've worked with Tim Dancy. I've worked with Jim Robson. I've worked with a bunch of guys from the United States, probably Ken Wilson, probably Dan Kelly, St. Louis, uh, probably Mike Emmerich, but I'm not sure at that point. And so it's my first time with Coley and he comes in and he sits down and Bob's not that tall. 
So he kind of hikes the chair up and he, he undoes the top buckle on his pants and he undoes his belt. I don't, I'm not telling any stories out of school. And he's got a black cigarette holder because in those days you could smoke in the rink and he put that baby right down in front of me, which was charming to the nth degree. But we, we start, the game starts and I'm working like crazy and, you know, coffee scores from Curry and Gretzky and I'm writing it down and I'm putting it beside him and he's, he's taking it at his leisure and he's reading it whenever he feels comfortable, the scoring play. And in Edmonton, we had, I don't know if you guys had this at Maple Leaf Gardens, Paul, but we had, uh, we were tapped into the internal system. So we could hear the goal score and the assists before they went on the PA. So we could hear the official scores. So what happened is the puck would go in the net and I'd hear one guy say, goal scored seven Edmonton. And then a completely different person who's keeping track somewhere else on a different sheet says assist 17 and 99. So I have it before it's even on the PA. Before they've even dropped the puck, I put it beside him. But he doesn't look at it. So the play starts, and he's like, oh, the Oilers, now here's Stan Weir moving over the line. Nothing. So as he's doing this, I don't want him to miss the play because I'm really proud that I had this piece of paper. Of course, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's at that age, right? That's a huge yeah. surprise. Yeah. So I just touch his left arm. I just touch it. Mm -hmm. I, I barely brush it just to let him know that I'm here and there's something here for you. Mm -hmm. Nothing. He just continues on, you know, and the puck's back in the Oilers' own. Lee Fogelin touches it, and it's icing against the Blackhawks or something. Mm -hmm. We'll be back after this. We go to break. I'm just, I'm oblivious now. I'm just making notes. Yeah. He, he stops, and he turns to look at me, and he turns so quickly that I notice that he's turned. And I look. Mm -hmm. It's not the face of happiness that no. I'm looking at. No. He reaches up and he rips his headset off and slams it onto the desk. Now, I'm going to use the word effin', but he didn't use the word effin'. And he said, kid, anytime you start with kid, it's not mm -hmm. going well. Mm -hmm. Kid, don't be effin' touching me when I'm calling a game. Mm -hmm. Don't be effin' touching me. Don't effin' touch me again. <laughs> And I am, I don't know what to say. Like, I, my eyes must have been the size of Cleveland. Like, uh -huh. I did not know what to do. And then he turned. He put his headset back on. I think John Shannon was in the truck. Could have been Don Wallace. I can't remember who's producing. Somebody said, what's going on up there? And I'm just like, there's nothing going on. No, nothing. Don't, don't, nothing. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's We're good up here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Star Wars with yeah. Harrison Ford. That's right. We're fine here. Boring conversation. Fine. That's right. Nothing to see here. That's right. Uh, there was quite a bit to see because I checked to see if I'd soiled myself, which I had not. And uh, in a strange twist to the story, I never touched Bob Cole again. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, when you work with Bob and he's a legend and as as in awe as I was of Dave Hodge, I was equal in awe of Bob Cole. Um, as a matter of fact, I think I had just completed my first year assignment project on Bob, uh, which was an audio uh, assignment that I had to do at Ryerson. So now, flash forward to the next year, uh, you know, I'm sitting beside him in the booth doing it. And the one, and I had the exact same incident happen to me. You know, they tell you a lot of things to prep you to work with Bob, but the one thing they never tell you is don't touch him, never touch him. As a matter of fact, like, don't even look him in the eyes. Just do your job and just, you know, like sight unseen, unheard. 
Uh, and I, I did the same thing. I made the same mistake in 80, 86, 87 season. I reached over and well, I tried to get him uh, the goal scores and assists in time of the goal. Uh, instead, I, I uh, it, it, my situation was there was me, Harry beside me, and then Bob to his right against the wall. So I had to, I didn't want to go in front of Harry because that, that would be, you know, not nice or terrible for Harry. So I decided to go around Harry. And that was bad because I had to literally nudge Bob in the ribs to, to give him the scoring information. That must have been yeah. well received. Yeah, no, it was not good. Yeah, same thing. He rocketed out of his chair, bounced his head off the top of the ceiling in the booth, and I got the same lecture on the next stoppage. But what happened to you? We learned, right? Don't mm-hmm. touch Bob Cole. Maybe I should just get a t-shirt. Don't touch yep. Bob Cole. Maybe that'll be the name of my band. I don't know. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Like the signs at the zoo, don't feed the animals. Don't touch Bob Cole. They should have it right in the booth, right? Welcome to Hockey Night in Canada. Don't touch Bob Cole. (laughs) Man, I love those stories. So each show, we're also going to answer a question that we get on Twitter or Insta. I'm at Big Mouth Sports. Paul is at From Ice Level. We also have inside the truck accounts on both. Uh, The first question we're going to talk about today uh, in the debut podcast is from a gentleman named Rich Thorpe at Exit 716. Uh, direct quote, why do some producers insist on showing a reaction on the bench or behind the play when the puck is going up the ice? Couldn't that be saved for a replay? It drives me nuts. Well, first of all, Rich, I will say this. Producers don't decide that. It would be a philosophical decision that you would have before the show, but that would be whether or not you're even going to incorporate back cuts, because that's what they're called, into your production philosophy. I think if the goalie's pulling a Clint Malarchuk, or if Richard Zednick just got cut, or if somebody's trying to crawl off on their hands and knees, I think there's some value to it. Personally, I don't love back cuts for goalies racing to the bench for the extra attacker or that kind of thing. I think that's why you have announcers. However, the director would be the one to make that decision. You're up, buddy. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a totally a philosophy thing. I've worked at some networks that encourage it and say it, you know, it adds to the emotion of the moment. And I work with some uh, networks that says, if you ever do that, you'll never work for us again. So uh, you kind of know the rules of engagement uh, from a director's standpoint when you're, when you're sitting in the chair that night cutting the show. But you're, you're 100% bang on, Steve. It, it is really a reaction of the moment. And if there is something that you would look back on and say, we missed that, then, then you cut it live. Uh, otherwise, you don't because it is extremely jarring because to the fan at home watching on TV, he has no idea it's coming. You do because you're sitting in the truck staring at the camera for five seconds before you cut it and decide if you're going to take it or not. So you've previewed it in your mind and it m- makes sense to you, but it doesn't. It comes out blind to the viewer at home and it, and it is very jarring. Uh, but I mean, I do, I, I, I have a green light to back cut with Fox sports, Carolina hurricanes, and I will only do it. Um, like I say, if a player's limping off the ice or if you know the players today, they lose their blades a lot. And there's some funny moments watching guys flamingo off the ice, but I, I really don't, I could keep my back cuts to a minimum. And um, of course the, the, the obvious reason of why you wouldn't do it is you could miss something, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, I mean, r- rule of engagement on that is you only would make that cut if the puck was in a safe position, meaning not 
not going to go in the net. But either way, it's, it's, I mean, in hockey, you never know, right? Defenseman wires one off the glass from inside his blue line. It takes a funny bounce and it's in the net. You could miss that easy. So um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's uh, it, it can really add to the moment, but it can also be one of the worst decisions you ever make in your career too. All right. So that begs the op- the obvious question. Have you ever missed a goal? Uh uh, cards on the table. Uh, I m- almost missed one by like about 1.25 seconds. Uh, it was a TSN. One point, so what, like 43 yeah. frames or something? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, but who's counting? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that so was a TSN NHL game that I was doing. Um, it was like Washington at Vancouver and, uh, Kuznetsov rifled one from center ice on the goal and then got absolutely laid out over the boards into the Canucks bench. And I cut, the hilarity at the bench of him going like ass over tea kettle skates straight up in the air, basically vertical. But by the time I cut back quickly to the game camera, the puck went in the net. And so the, the viewer at home, it's like, well, what just happened? We went from Kuznetsov upside down in the Canucks bench. And now all of a sudden there's a, a goal against. And, and it technically I did not miss the goal. You see the puck go across the line, but the cut was way too late back to the game camera. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I completely got sucked in officially. It was not a miss, but uh, technically it didn't look very good. I'm sorry. I have to step in at some point when you're going frame by frame to see if you've missed a goal, I'm (laughs) going to have to say you may have missed that goal. I also, I also like in your description when you snap your fingers on Mm -hmm. when you're talking about the cut, only a real director would do that. Yeah. 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 There you go. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good one. That's Mm -hmm. a good one. The closest I ever came to missing anything. Well, we did miss it. Uh, So we're doing the 89 gray cup which anybody who's a Grey Cup fan knows it was literally the greatest Grey Cup game ever, play, ever played. And our director's Ron Harrison. Ron Harrison was working really hard. I think we had 17 cameras that night. A bunch of them were locked off. We were at Skydome. And late, I think it was in the fourth quarter, Al Bruno, who's the Ticats head coach, is going nuts on the bench. And we've got the sound up a little bit. You can't hear every word, but you know some of them aren't really good family-friendly words, and he's going nuts, and he's yelling at the referee, and we're showing the referee, and we're back and forth, and I'm watching, but I'm also watching the field, but I guess I wasn't, you know, cards on the table, as you said, paying as close attention as I should have, because they were setting up for a field goal, and they kicked a field goal while we were showing Al Bruno yelling and screaming back and forth. And no, Don no. Whitman and Ryan Brown Lancaster are calling the game. I don't even think they called the field goal. They might have. I have no idea. We were so caught up in the moment. And then we went to break and we came back and said, listen, we got to be honest. Yeah. This is what happened going to break. Here's the field goal that you missed. But we showed the entertaining part, which was Al Bruno going snake on the sideline. And you got a question in your mailbag? What do you got, Paul? I do. Uh, I got a question from Jonathan Davis in Los Angeles. Uh, some of you out there may recognize the name. Uh, JD is the uh, host of Two Man Advantage, which airs Sunday afternoons on Sirius XM NHL radio. And JD wants to know, who is the best NHL player to wear a mic during a game? And uh, I thought this was an excellent question uh, because it allows us to not only give some answers, but also talk philosophy about uh, miking up athletes in the game. Um, so in terms of the NHL, um, you know, the usual suspects that you think that are good guys that chirp on the ice are. So, I mean, I think the gold, gold medal would go to Brad Marchand of Boston for sure. Um, 
And then the other guys that from my experience come to mind, Drew Doughty is an excellent chirper on the ice. Uh, Ryan Reeves and Pat Maroon, I think probably would be your gold, silver tied for bronze. Um, these guys are, are, are great TV anytime you put a microphone on them. Unfortunately, most of this stuff is unusable. And uh, that is because um, anything that you use has to be vetted uh, by the league, by the team, by your network. Um, a lot of people have to sign off on that before it actually goes to air. And, and so, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff is not usable, um, which, uh, which brings up the topic of philosophy of player mics. And live sports broadcasts, uh, of all sports are kind of going away from uh, incorporating the live player mic uh, just because uh, because of the the red tape that it takes to get to get it approved to get it in on time. The speed of uh, today's games uh, are so fast that it, it makes it really impossible to do it in a timely manner. Um, also, there's the cost uh, you know cost to do this. You're adding a, a separate camera and a separate videotape machine to follow these players around all night. And, you know, all networks now, just like all companies, are trying to do more with less. And so, you know, if you're going to add money to the production like that, you want it to use it as a camera and a tape machine to follow the game, not necessarily waste it on a player clip that may or may not get in. Right. And that's what I was going to say. So you've got to ISO that guy, just so everybody understands. Mm -hmm. If he's wearing a mic, you have to ISO him every time he comes on the ice and even on the bench. Like that camera is slave to that guy because if he says something and you don't have him on camera, it's a complete waste. So you're basically wasting 60 on that one, routed into one machine and one camera slaved there all game. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I, I won't mention any names, but I've worked with producers where we've had player mics and the <laughs> the producer has said i'm sorry the microphone's broken it's no good anyway can we spin that camera back and start using it for game coverage now because you know just because it is such a value you know facilities are at a premium um you know cameras and tape machines and stuff are at a premium so you want to make sure that you use them for the best and and a producer director philosophy is game coverage game coverage game coverage so um so anyways i thought that was an excellent question by jd so i hope i answered it for you um, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, those live mics are great for documentaries, features like, you know, the road to the Stanley Cup or the road to the Winter Classic. Those shows live and die with player mics. But unfortunately, in all sports across the board, um, you know, the, the actual live game broadcast is going away from it. I'll bounce off you one little bit in that we do do or have up until this point, uh, last couple of years, done live mic on CFL broadcasts. The, and, and you're absolutely correct. And those are vetted by the CFL. Uh, I'm sitting with my finger on the mute button and there is a CFL representative right beside me listening to exactly what I'm listening to. And we run about 100 or 110 mutes per game. Most of them are profanity. Uh, a lot of them are play reveals. Some of them are injury reveals. Some of them are player taunts. Um, so quarterbacks can usually get in because usually when they call a play in a huddle, they're not going to say anything profane. And it's too soon before the play for the defensive team to react, even if they hear the play call inside the huddle. But yeah, I, th I think there are limited occasions because it does have to be vetted. And, you know, I would feel mortified if some sort of really, you know, not that there's good profanity, but some of the worst profanity happened to sneak through. That would just completely defeat the whole, the whole project. I like those questions. There's always so much to discuss. So keep sending the questions in. I'm at Big Mouth Sports. Paul is at From Ice Level. Twitter, Instagram, Inside the Truck is on both of those. 
send us what you got. We'll read them. If we like them, we're going to discuss them. Awesome. So that puts a bow on episode one for us uh, today. Uh, well, let's look ahead to episode two um, with the NHL uh, about to return to play. Uh, your favorite NHL broadcast will also return to air. And uh, we'll have a very special guest. And we'll take a deep dive into um, how that's all going to play out and uh, how your favorite shows are going to look uh, after the pause. I'm Steve Lansky. He's Paul Hemming. That's it for today. You keep listening, and we'll keep bringing you right inside the truck.